Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present Who Killed the Yogurt Shop 4, Part 3, with this week's special guest, Nick, from the True Crime Garage podcast. The news was unreal. Four teenage girls, each shot in the head and severely burned. Their bodies left inside a local yogurt shop. Three of the victims were students at Lanier High School. Give us the information that will lead to the arrest and conviction of the person that murdered these girls, and we will give you $100,000 for that information. Jennifer and Sarah Harbison, Eliza Thomas, and Amy Ayers, all killed inside a frozen yogurt shop on Anderson Lane in North Austin. Four men were arrested, two of them were convicted, and years later, their convictions were overturned. The first day back to school for their classmates wasn't easy. Austin police have chased down over 700 leads. Tonight, for the first time, they've named three men they want to question in the murders. I mean, you don't ever think anybody's going to come into a yogurt place and shoot you. I mean, I still don't know why why someone would kill four innocent innocent girls. They never did anything, you know, to hurt anybody. She always put her hair way up, you know, and then she'd have clips and then wash her face real good at night, and I can just still see her doing it. The Lanier School community, student body, and faculty and staff have been saddened by the tragic deaths of four young ladies for whom we mourn today. The only thing that would help at the moment is Eliza coming in the door. Now, you've been uh, living here in Charlton for quite some time. Uh, what have you been doing? Uh, working, living my life. Two of the four arrested were Michael James Scott, age 26, from Buda, Texas, Robert Burns Springsteen, age 26, from Charleston, West Virginia. I mean, they died and they were so, you know, they were our age. And I mean, it makes you really think, you know, tomorrow is a promise. And I mean, anybody here may not be here tomorrow, and it's just scary and it hurts. They may have taken the lives of four girls but they've ruined the lives of a lot of people. It would not be prudent to risk a trial until we know the nature of the involvement of this unknown male. Hills Court in Austin is going to hear arguments today on the notorious yogurt shop murder case. They're gonna have their, their day of facing someone. Still haunts people to this day. If you read about it, if you heard about it, if you were touched by it, if you were affected by it, you became a victim. Hello and welcome to episode 57 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media production. On this week's show, we will be discussing the yogurt shop murders in Austin, Texas, and that is the death of four teenage girls, two of which were employees at the I Cannot Believe It's Yogurt Shop. And this happened in 1991, and the victims were Jennifer Harbison, who was 17, 15-year-old sister Sarah Harbison, Eliza Thomas, who was Jennifer's co-worker, and her friend Amy Ayers, who was only 13. Now, their bodies were discovered after a fire was reported at about quarter to midnight on that December 6th, 1991, and that's when the bodies were discovered. And since then, the case has remained unsolved. We have seen a number of 
confessions. I think I've read upwards of 50. Of course, these are all false confessions, and some cases have even led to trials and even convictions, and we'll get all into that. But as far as the statesman goes, the American statesman out of Austin, that is their main paper, and they put together a really nice timeline on the case. So on December six, as I mentioned, is when the bodies were found after the fire was reported. And then it was on December 8th, 1991, when the medical examiner released the autopsy stating that each of the four girls had been shot. The next day, police discovered evidence that they said led them to believe that there was more than one person involved in the killings. And then again, another day later, they had a funeral for the girls where almost 2,000 people attended. Then things kind of died down for a little bit. They did put out a cycle logical profile on December 17th in 1991. Now granted this is 11 days after the fact so how much weight we can put into that profile I'm not sure but then again you know I guess it's better to do it right away than to wait 10 years or so. But again these were four girls two of which were employees two of which were just there visiting their friends and basically they ended up being in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's been a couple different theories on who could have been the actual perpetrators of the crime. I've included a map of the yogurt shop on my Twitter page as well as in many of my tweets. And that is kind of the best way to look at the store and see how this could have all gone down, especially at the time that it did. So, again, I can't thank Nick enough for helping me out with this week's episode and since he has done a couple episodes on this case we're going to go right into my conversation with Nick and I think the last time that we had spoken we were talking about some of the disparities between the confessions from Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen. So again join me this week for episode 57 of Who Killed? The Yogurt Shop Four. I am so lucky again to be joined this week for part two, which is really part three of my mini series on the Yogurt Shop murders. Nick is always willing to make time for me, and I am so grateful. He is the host of the one and only True Crime Garage. Again, all of his backlogged shows can be found on Stitcher, and that is a free app. So, Anywhere you get your podcasts, uh, you can find that app. So, Nick, welcome back to Who Killed the Yogurt Shop 4. Thank you once again for having me, Bill. And I wanted to first start off by congratulating you. The My Passion Case stuff, I've been listening. It's very good. It's fantastic. Everybody should be checking that out. And I'm glad that you are revisiting Yogurt Shop. It's such fascinating case. It's a complicated case. It's one that many people have covered. I mean, you're not the first. True Crime Garage was not the first. If you want to, here's a little plug here. If you want to download the Stitcher app for free and listen to all of our old episodes, True Crime Garage, you can hear us cover Yogurt Shop in episodes 81 and 82. Now, this case is so big and so complicated, it really requires more than two episodes. And as we've already pointed out, there are two big, thick, very good books about this case, Who Killed These Girls and Murdered Innocents. Yeah. We have we have so many um I wanted to point this out too before we get too far into it because there's a lot of good coverage on this case on the local level. It yes. was yes. K V U E. Yep. Uh, that must be a local TV it's there. 
yeah, local KVUE, they definitely, they do a lot of coverage on this case. They were just in the news a few days ago, no pun intended, being the news themselves. Definitely KVUE, uh, the American Statesman or the Austin Statesman, I believe, and the Austin Chronicle have all been great Austin resources. Chronicle's great. GoSanAngelo.com yeah. is great. Texas yeah. Monthly Magazine. Texas Monthly Magazine is one of my favorite uh, publications out there. And it's a great resource for me anytime that I'm looking into Texas cases. I highly recommend that. And, you know, this case has been featured on many, many TV shows multiple times, but really the go-to here for Yogurt Shop is 48 Hours. 48 oh, yeah. Hours cover this 40, case. Yeah. Uh, three times that I can think of, and their coverage is the absolute best. Erin Moriarty, I'm sorry. I think she is the one that covers the case. She is awesome. And uh, 48 Hours itself, yeah, they've they've been all over this case, I think, since the beginning. So uh, if you ever get an opportunity to watch some of their older episodes, it's definitely worth your, worth your while. And I know that we, uh, as we were finishing up last week's show, we were talking about, I think we were talking about the interrogations and... Uh, some of the disparities inside the investigation, you know, in, inside of the interrogation within Michael Scott's confession. Uh, is that where we were? I think that's where we were. Well, I, I think that it's important when we are reviewing this case to remind everybody that there were problems with his confession, his problems with things that he said happened that we know and that investigators knew did not happen or were either you know either did not happen 100% or were very very highly unlikely and so i think the the first thing that stands out is I, i'll give a very brief and vague version of michael scott's confession cuz i don't want to go the details are are terrible i'm going to put the interrogation at the end of the vid, uh podcast so like people can listen basically he says that at some point during the the night on uh what was that friday december uh december 6th yeah, Friday, December, December 6, 1991. He says at some point when the, when the girls are already in there working, when they're conducting regular business, this is during operation hours, you know, they're open for business, that he went into the store and eventually he works his way to go into the back room. Now, we talked about having the diagram and everybody looking at this, um, yeah. the layout of the store. It's important to, to, one, keep in mind, this store is it's pretty small. It's this not, not big. Yeah, it's not a big restaurant. And it's in basically a strip mall. Yeah, it's not a and, standalone. Right. And what you have here, for those that are not looking at the diagram, with as you would with any restaurant, you have a front of the house and you have a back of the house, right? And the front you have where you conduct business, where you sell the food, where people consume the food and the snacks and the drinks. Uh, you have tables and chairs and booths. Yeah, you, you walk in the front doors, you have a row of booths on one side. On one wall, you have a row of booths on the wall immediately across from that. And then between those two sets of booths, those two rows of booths, you have one, two, three, you have seven small tables. These are what I would call two tops. People that worked in restaurants call them two tops because two people can sit at each of these tables. Or so, a high top. Yeah. These were not high tops, though. Oh, that's true. But I, working in the restaurant, then, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and then you have the counter. You know, people approach the counter. They tell them what kind of yogurt that they want. You have the cash register right there on that counter. Behind the counter, you have another counter where it's like yogurt machines and uh, mm -hmm. a lot of the, the workings of what you're going to serve to the customers. Well, the front of the house and the back of the house are separated by a wall and there's a door there. 
Now there are no, there are two restrooms in this yogurt shop, but they're both in the back of the house. They're both in what I call and what most people call the storage room. So this storage room is the back of the house. Now the storage room is ultimately where all four girls were assaulted and killed and left and where the fire was started itself. Right. So we have, we have front doors and we have back doors. The back door to the business is in the storage room in the back of the house. Now I'm guessing here, and I, I don't have his confession right in front of me, but I'm guessing he probably used the ruse of I'm, I need to use the restroom because there's a men's restroom and a women's restroom in the back of the house. And if anybody's looking at the diagram or for those not looking at it, what you're going to see in the storage room in the back of the house is the back of the house is about 40% of the business. So it's already small anyway, but it's also kind of cut up because you have an office back there that that's its own room. Mm -hmm. You have a walk-in cooler and then you have the men's and the women's restrooms. This looks like, um, you know, just a one person restroom. It's very much like a shoebox design, you yeah. know, as yeah. far as like if you wanted to look what, you know, over like an aerial view of what a shoebox would be like, this is what it would be like. He claims that he went in the back of the house during open hours, during hours of operation and unlocked the back door so that later when the store was closed, he and his buddies could access the yogurt shop from the back door and then rob the place. But what ends up taking place is that they end up assaulting the girls, killing them, and setting the fire, and then leave. That's his confession. One of the big problems with his confession is there is evidence to suggest that the perpetrators of this crime did not enter the yogurt shop through the back door. I want to point out, when first responders, when they responded to the fire, Ugh, yeah. when they responded to the fire, so, so this is, as we said, Friday, December 6th, 1991, Hillside Center. West Anderson Lane, Austin, Texas, there was, they see smoke and they're responding to the smoke at 11.47 p.m. And the now, place closed at 11. Yeah. And when they arrive, when first responders arrive on scene, what they find is the front doors to the business locked and they find the back door. There's, there's a little argument on this. It's, it's, it was definitely unlocked, but some have said that it was ajar. Yeah, I've heard speculation on whether or not it was somebody, a first responder that opened the door or not, as far as what the door was. The fact that the front doors are locked, I think that says a lot. Yeah. There's just, there's so much to be said. And I think that's where the two, you know, I guess we have to kind of discuss. Well, you before. don't want to stray too much here, Bill. Well, uh, yeah, okay. I was going to stray. So let's, let's start with a couple of the problems that are with Michael Scott's confession. Good idea, Nick. First, he says that Robert Springsteen raped one of the girls in the office okay in the room we're calling the office that everybody referred to as the office the problem with that is when first responders res responded to the scene they found the office locked okay and because there was a very hot fire burning in the storage room they have evidence they have proof that the office was never accessed you know, that there was no sign of any fire in there because it was closed off from the fire. Right. So they have evidence to suggest that the office was never accessed. And then on top of that, this is a locked door. The door to the office is locked, and those keys were found in the front of the house uh, by the cash register. Okay. I was going to ask if they were in the front door or not because sometimes, you know, when you're locking up, you kind of leave the keys in the door, and I don't know. Standard operation there was to, to clean up the place, close down the store, and then what the girls would do, mind you, these are two 17-year-old girls working by themselves, 
on a Friday night, closing up a shop at 11 o'clock. Late. But what, what, what they're to do is the last thing that they do is they, they're going to lock the door, the front doors, while they're cleaning everything up, right? And then at the end of the night, when they're all finished, they're going to exit through the front door, use a key, a, a key that's, you know, by itself. Not, I imagine it's not on a key ring. Right. Because, because they're going to use that key to lock the door, and then they're going to slide the key under the door so that the responding, the, the opening manager the next day will come in using their key to unlock the door and find the closer's key on the floor from the night before. Right. So they're not like actually taking the keys home with them. Yeah. So, so when we talk about how did this whole crime go down, we have, we have indicators. We know how the store operated. We know the cleaning procedures and the closing duties of these workers and the order that they were to do them in. So that gives us an idea of when the crime kicked off, you know, when the attack started. And because we found the front doors locked, we found the open sign flipped over to close, but yet the girls didn't exit through the front and slide the key back under. We know that the, the attack started sometime after the doors were locked and before they finished their closing duties for the night. Now, this is a random question, and I don't know if you have the answer to this or not, and I don't recall coming across it when I was doing my research. Was this one of those front doors where you had to have it unlocked to leave, or you could leave and it would automatically lock behind them? You know, meaning if there were extra customers in the store and they were going to lock so no more customers could come in, but the customers that were there would still be able to leave on their own accord. That I don't know. I I do not know. Um, That may make sense with the theory that we're going to present uh, in a little bit, but um, I do know that they needed a key to lock up for the night and then they would slide that key back under the door. Yeah. And I guess, I guess making, it makes sense now that I think about it out loud. (laughs) It, It, yeah, they definitely would have to have the key to unlock the door because the key is obviously, you know, triggering the, locking mechanism so and obviously a big problem here too bill is that we don't have any type of surveillance cameras or anything like that we not even not even standard equipment for 1991 yeah up here because not even it, the vcr yeah because had we had that and had it been operational that would have been a big help but that's probably why this location was chosen to commit a crime that I mean, another reason yeah, I mean, this is a soft target. This is what I would call a soft target. You, if you go in there, and I believe that the perpetrators of this crime had knowledge in advance of the, how the store worked. And it's very basic knowledge, but they probably case the joint. And they, what they're going to see at first, immediately, is that there is no surveillance, that there are no cameras. And then the second thing that you notice is that a lot of times it's just teenagers that are working here and it's a small staff. It's one or two people. I mean, that's, yeah, it's a soft target. Yeah. I think the first girl arrived at work at seven and the the other one arrived at eight. So there might've even been an hour where there was only one person working. I don't know. They they may have had staggered uh, shifts or whatever, but uh, I'd like to work that shift eight to 11. (laughs) But regardless, you're going to, um, 
Yeah, I don't know if she returned at eight or if she came came in at eight, but one of them definitely arrived at eight. And but regardless, what you have is you have a a small staff, one or two people. They're teenagers. This is a very soft target if you're looking to rob rob a place. Yeah, and that night it was what Jen, uh, Jennifer's sister and then her friend Amy that were up there. I think it was Sarah and Amy so the, that were the, the workers were Eliza Thomas and Jennifer Harvison. Yeah, that's right. And then up there that night with them in the back of the house in the back room, we have Sarah Harbison, Jennifer's mm-hmm. sister, right. and her friend Amy Ayers. So the two that are working are 17 years old. And then we have Sarah Harbison, who's 15, and her friend Amy Ayers, who was just 13 years old. The two younger girls were supposed to be in the back eating a pizza. And we believe this to be the case because they did find uh, one of the, the one of the girls left at some point to purchase a pizza, and we find the pizza box in the back of the house uh, after the crimes took place. So the way that they believed that this went down was right around closing time, the attack started. And during this time, we would have the two girls, the two 17-year-olds, in the front of the house working, doing their closing duties. And the two younger girls are probably, they may have been helping in some form or fashion, but it's believed that they were, for the most part, in the back of the house for most of the evening, you know, eating their pizza and talking. Yeah, and I think anybody who's been in a situation where their friends work at a local store or gas station or you name it, especially as teenagers, it becomes a local kind of hangout. <laughs> like especially when you're the younger sister or you know friend of the girl that's working there at Friday night. Yeah, of course we'll come up and have pizza with you guys. I mean, it just seems like such an innocent thing that teenage girls would do and boys would do as well, but man. God, such tragedy. And let's take a moment to hear from this week's sponsor. I can't thank this week's sponsor enough, Podcorn. They make connecting podcasters with sponsorship opportunities such as host-read ads, topical discussions, and interview segments easy as can be. They took what had been a labor-intensive part of my podcasting process and make it easy for me to focus on what we as creators do best, create. If you're looking for a way to monetize the hard work you put into your podcast, then look no further than Podcorn. You set the rate you believe to be fair and deal with the brands directly. There is no middleman. And at Podcorn, you will never give up any rights to your podcast. Their mission is to make sure creators like me are compensated in an appropriate manner. You can check them out on their website, podcorn.com. They have packages for podcasts of all sizes. And again, I can't thank them enough for making my life easier. I've provided a link in the show notes to check out what Podcorn can do for you. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Yeah, so... Michael Scott claims that Robert Springsteen and Robert backs this portion of the story up that he raped one of the girls in the office, but we've already pointed out that there was, they know that that? the office was not open. It was locked that, that nobody had accessed the office during the commission of these crimes. And then on top of that, the next portion that becomes a big problem. Now, mind you, a lot of the stuff that he gets right 
he's getting it right because we just we showed last week how they led, you know, Polanco led him to these correct answers. What sure. did you tie them up with? And then eventually he gets it right and they agree on it. But one thing that he got wrong, even with with all the help from the detectives in his confession, is the uh, the starting point of the fire. According to Michael Scott's story, he claims that he brought with him Zippo or some type of lighter fluid and that it was used as an accelerant to start the fire. And the, the fire was set, was basically set on top of the girls that it was, they started the fire on the victims. True. That is and correct. That, but that is his claim. Said. But what happened is when they first started investigating this thing, you have a homicide detective because we have quadruple homicide. And then we also have arson investigators and the, the arson investigators determined early on in the investigation that the fire was started on a shelving unit. Now, this shelving unit is on the back, not on the back wall, but it's in that back corner, very close to the back door of mm-hmm. the store. And the reason why they know that that to be the starting place of the fire, it, the genesis of this fire is that it, it was the hottest. It was the, the hottest portion. It burned the hottest there. And it, it burned so hot that it melted. These are, these are metal shelves, you know, the, the uh, chef shelves, storage shelves, whatever you want to call them. These are those metal shelves. It melted the metal shelves. And then on top of that. The shelves melted? Yeah, you can see pictures where they kind of, uh, where they're, they're drooping. Wow. Once they put out the fire, they, hot. Had, they had drooped. And, but the fire was started on the shelving unit and then it burned hot and it burned up. Okay, so what we had going on here, too, is they had ceiling tiles and they had like that, uh, you know, everybody knows I get the drop. They're they're drop ceiling. They're called drop ceilings. Yeah, I don't know what it's made out of. Uh, I don't know what it's made out of either. They're just ceiling tiles. Right. This is not heavy duty material. What happens is these ceiling tiles started catching on fire as well, and they started falling. Now we have we have the victims. We have three of the victims that were placed over by that shelving unit and. I don't want to go too much into it, but there's when you review the evidence, it's 100% that these victims were moved after they were killed. Well, why? But like, like, I want to go into it just real fast. There's a reason why you can tell that they were moved. They were stacked on top of each other. With not to be blunt, but I'm that, sorry. That's what they say. That the the one of the th- parts of this story has always been that the victims were stacked. And that is yeah. true, but it's also not entirely true. It's a little more complicated than that. We have. We have Eliza Thomas. Her body was laying over top of Sarah Harbison's body. Okay. And then next to them, you have Jennifer Harbison, who's lying almost directly next to the two that we, let's call them stacked victims. Then about four feet away from Jennifer Harbison, we have Amy Ayers, the youngest victim. Right. And she was the only one that was shot twice. All the, all girl, all the girls were shot once with a twenty two caliber gun. And then Amy Ayers was shot a second time with a different caliber gun. Yeah. And so what was with the different caliber gun? Was it a 38 or was it a 38 caliber? Okay. Uh, so l- let's, let's go through this. Th- that's, that's a good point you got there, Bill, because this is another part of the story, the confession that is, that is wrong. Okay. So what we have here is the gun Remember we referenced that, that Maurice Pierce was picked up carrying a gun. They, the police found that gun. They found that 22. They tested it. 
and they confirmed that that 22 that that they they had ballistically didn't match the 22 that was used to kill the girls <laughs> the 22 caliber gun that shot all four girls then another part of the confession that's wrong is we have Michael Scott and and Robert Springsteen who's they they are led to to understand that a second cal- second gun was used the problem is they both got the the caliber of the gun wrong that was used it was it was a 38 that was used and i think um one of them believed that it was a 380 that that they were using and i'm no gun expert so i don't know yeah, I was going to say, I don't, know, I don't know the difference. I can tell you the difference between a shotgun and a pistol. <laughs> I got you there too, buddy. I just, uh, yeah, I'm not gun guy, but um, yeah, I'm sure there are a million people out there that will be able to correct me on that one. But yeah, that, that's so weird as far as the gun. So the weird thing about Davidson too is that, so Davidson, you know, they bring him, they bring this gun or they find this gun that, isn't it that Davidson shows them where the gun is? And they're able to test it. I'm going off a of memory here, and it's been a while. I, I don't I don't recall how they came into possession of the 22 caliber gun that was tested. Well, it's just uh, weird because Davidson ends up getting like while they're in jail, while Scott is in jail, he's getting held on perjury charges. Like, you, well, that's a whole different story in itself. Like, what the fuck is going on there? And pardon my French, but how is that even possible? Well, and the other problem, too, is that what they do is once they are armed with Michael Scott's confession, where he says that we lit the victims on fire, that's where the fire started, they then go back to the arson investigator and get him to change his story to say, oh, okay, maybe it didn't start on the shelving unit. Maybe the fire didn't start on the shelving unit, and it didn't burn in that back corner. It started on the victims who were near that back corner. And that's not a real hard sell to the jury either, because remember we mentioned when the fire burnt hot on that shelving unit, it burnt hot and it burnt up and it created debris that fell onto some of the victims. Mm -hmm. So when you're reviewing pictures and whatnot and you see these charred bodies, it's easy to believe that that's where the fire started. The problem is it didn't start there. We know that to be a fact because where it burnt the hottest was in that corner. It burnt the hottest in that corner. If the girls would have been the start of the fire, the fire wouldn't have been as big as what it ended up being. We know how hot or or at least at least how hot this thing got because we had a one of those aluminum uh, ladders was located in this back room in that back corner. Like a step and ladder? It's uh, probably like an eight foot ladder. Or something. Yeah. I believe it to be like a seven or eight foot ladder. Everybody has one in their garage. It's one of that's those. What aluminum that's what I was thinking ladders. of. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And the great thing about aluminum and the great thing about metal, and I can't remember if it was in fact aluminum, but the great thing about metal is we know what the melting point is for different metals. Mm-hmm. Well, this ladder, it required a minimum of 1200 degrees for this thing to, to melt. And it melted. It melted the top of the ladder. So at, at minimum, the fire was burning at 1,201 degrees and probably a lot hotter than that. Yeah, because at the end of the day, I think, what, Amy, Amy's body was the only one that was able to be... Well, because she was furthest from the fire. Exactly. And, and if you look at the map, you can see that. Yeah, yeah. She was positioned over near the restrooms, and the other three girls were uh, in that back corner nearest the back door. 
But you think again, she was trying to make a run for it? Because she was shot twice. Well, she was technically only four feet from, uh, according to Beverly Lowry, and according to yeah. know, statements made at trial, she was technically only four feet from Jennifer Harbison. So okay, yeah, she here, here's damn it, you're you're trying to make me go through details that I don't want to go through, and but we're going to have to now. Um, you've opened the door. So, and I, I just, the listener beware, because I don't even like saying it. And so I can't imagine anybody wants to hear it. But the way that these girls were killed, and they can tell by the trajectory of the bullet that, that entered the, the heads, um, they, were, they were either lying face down or would have been on their knees, hands and knees. Now, we, can, we have to go with the assumption that they were lying face down because the way that several of them were bound and gagged, they would not, at least two of them would not have been able to physically have been on their hands and knees because the hands were tied behind their backs. Now, they were tied up with their, we talked last week about Michael Scott not knowing what they were tied up with, and eventually he gets to the real thing that they were tied up with. They were tied up with their own clothing. They were forced to strip, but they were not stripped. And how do we know that? We don't have rips or tears in the clothing. A lot of the clothing was technically... Some of it even looked to have been folded or laid out, you know, neatly placed by the girls after they were forced to strip. And then they're tied up with their uh, and gagged with their own clothing. So <sighs> we know we know that they're shot in the back of the head and in, in the in where they were. And what I'm guessing is. There's also and I'm not going to get into why, but there's scientific evidence to suggest what order they were sexually assaulted in and in what order they were killed in. And it's believed that Eliza Thomas was the last one assaulted, the first one killed. And so what you have here, Bill, if you're trying to picture this, is you have four victims lying face down. They've been assaulted. We're going to start executing them. She's the first one killed. It's believed that Amy Ayers was going to be the last one shot. And because she was the last one shot, she was able to react. She probably just jerked her head or, or, or some type of reaction or flinch to the, what she knew was going to be inevitability. And so it's believed that, that she probably got up and tried to flee or, or was just reacting. You know, if you get hit in the head hard enough or you get shot in the head, sometimes your body just, just starts reacting. Um, but she left blood on some of the walls. Um, and then she would have been shot in the head with the, uh, with the 38 after that. And again, I apologize to everybody, but um, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's pretty bad. I, yeah, I did, and it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's basically not to you know to put it as bluntly as possible. It's execution style. I mean, it's basically like these women were ex- executed, and it's so bad. It's just so tragic. Well, and uh, yeah, it, it's it's absolutely horrible. It's it's a horrific crime. It's it's a very ho- tough crime to discuss. But at the same time, you know, when we have these confessions that led to a couple of convictions and ultimately Springsteen on death row, keep in mind, we had other confessors. We had other people that came that that they sat in a room that confessed to committing these crimes. It's just for whatever reason, police, they knew that those confessions weren't correct because they didn't line up with the evidence. We had other detailed confessions, too. And there was a lot of them. There's one guy, his last name was Smith. I, he, I think his nickname was Buddha. I don't have his first name in front of me. But he and two of his friends were teenagers at the time, and they had a pretty detailed confession, and they got some things right. But they, 
they never took those guys to trial. So I think what happened here ultimately is I think this is such a horrific crime. And, and you know, you and I spoke off the record about the, the, the trauma to the first oh, responders yes. and to the investigators and the PTSD and, and everything that they endured as well. Mm-hmm. That I think what happened here that was in the beginning when they were getting these false confessions in the beginning when they were interviewing people, they, they were hurt. They were hurt, but they wanted to get it right. And I think as this thing drug on and, and as it went cold, I think that at some point the investigators suffering themselves just needed it to be over. And unfortunately, Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen, and that, that was, I think they thought they were right. I it's think human they thought nature. Those guys did it, but, but I think they wanted it to be over. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, I think with their desire for it to be solved and the desire for it to be solved for the city, the community, the people, the family, the victims, everybody, I think that they were quick to, oh shit, we got a lead here. Let's follow this until the end. And yeah they kind of unfortunately gave them tunnel vision, which we see in a lot of these cases of wrongful convictions or false confessions where it's, they want this person to confess because they know that this is like, even, even if they know that like, it may not be right. They think it's right at the time. I mean, like part of them is confident that this is the killer. Yeah. They're not just being malicious. And I, I think that paints a broad stroke of too many officers that say, Oh, you know, they're trying to, force them into this that and the other yeah there's probably a lot of those guys too but majority of them are probably you know trying to get to the bottom line and that's who the fuck killed these girls well and the other thing too that i want to point out and this is just my own speculation my own personal belief but i also don't believe that and i think we'll figure this out one day i think this this will be solved someday so it's not a matter of if but a matter of when and i think when it is solved if we do learn details that i think we're going to learn that the the motivation the the motive here was not robbery i think the motive here was sexual assault and we talked about a soft target i yeah. think i think the same thing applies for the sexual assault that i think that these guys and and i say these guys i mean the actual perpetrators not michael scott not robert springsteen the actual perpetrators, and I believe it to be, too, there's evidence to that would tell us that this is two perpetrators. You can see it in the pictures. Well, yeah, you can see it in the pictures and the DNA evidence. That, that, that's the other thing we kind of left out there. The DNA evidence is what exonerated. I mean, it excludes all four of the guys who were arrested. It excludes the two guys that were convicted of the murders. Right. There, there, were, there were sexual assaults that happened, uh, three or four sexual assaults depending on what reports you read and there was dna left at the scene and none of it belongs to michael scott none of it belongs to robert springsteen none of it belongs to maurice pierce none of it belongs to forrest who i can never remember his last name wilborn wilborn and maurice pierce who's now dead because he tried to stab a police officer in 2010 and was yeah. killed yeah he was never a good guy uh, you know it, no um i don't want anybody to to get confused now the other guys they were yeah they were idiots when they were teenagers but i i, I don't think michael scott i don't think robert springsteen i don't think forrest wilborn i don't think those guys were bad guys you know uh maurice pierce was just a, a pain in the ass his entire life yeah he was he, he definitely uh 
It was on the radar. So mm-hmm. I know you got to go, man. Uh, I don't know if we got everything covered this week. May have to hit you well, up again for another 20 minutes real or so. Quick, real quick before we go. I, I Nick, thanks again, man. I know you got to run. You're so busy with everything you got going on, Mr. Podcast Extraordinaire. Uh, appreciate you joining me again for the 8 millionth time. I can't thank you enough for everything that you've done for me in this industry, and I am so appreciative of it all. So thank you, Nick. Well, I'm always glad and always very happy to talk with you, Bill. God bless you, and God bless Texas. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you so much again to Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast for joining me again on this week's episode of Who Killed the Yogurt Shop 4. As I was last year, I will be on Podcast Row at CrimeCon 2020 in Orlando. If you guys are looking to go, this is really a bucket list item for any true crime fan. And if you'd like to save on your ticket price, you can actually use my promo code AMY2020. And I'll be representing Who Killed My Passion Case and Who Killed Amy Mahalovic on the row. So I will be dropping new episodes of Who Killed every Friday, wherever you get your favorite shows, as well as new episodes of my other show, My Passion Case, on Mondays. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the show by clicking on the donate button on the left-hand side of slowburnmedia.com. That is slow minus the W, or via the Venmo app, with my username at bill-huffman-3. I will also provide a link in the show notes. Any amount is appreciated, and it does really help keep this podcast running. If you guys do enjoy the show and would like to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts, that also helps keep the show in the spotlight. I will be updating my Twitter feed constantly as far as new shows in the pipeline as well as previous cases that I've covered. If there are any updates, you can follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. And again, thank you to Nick of the insanely popular True Crime Garage podcast. They can be found, all of their shows can be found on the Stitcher app and that goes back to when they first started and they've got well over 350 shows so it's a wealth of true crime knowledge and they really are one of the best shows out there so thanks again to Nick and I look forward to talking to you guys again soon and until next time be safe As I mentioned during my conversation with Nick, I am going to go ahead and play Michael Scott's interrogation tape first, and then you're going to hear the interrogation tape for one Robert Springsteen. Again, these are the interrogations seven years after the murders at the yogurt shop. You want the truth, and you know what the truth is. You're having trouble with the memory of the flashbacks. You know what happened. You're scared to tell us. I don't blame you. It's a horrible thing what you saw in there. Look, can I tell y'all what I keep seeing in my head? Tell us what you've seen in your head. I keep seeing these girls get shot. Right. Tell us what that looks like. Tell us what you see specifically. How they're getting shot and who's shooting them. Come on, I didn't do it yet. Tell us. Let's do this today. Let's do it. Seeing girls. I remember one girl screaming, terrified. Okay. I, I don't know if this is real or not or if this is. Michael, it's real. 
It's okay. If you present it to them where you want it's real. Mike, look at me. You're remembering what happened. So you were inside there, right? I don't. You're remembering what happened. I don't actually remember going in the building. But you were in the building. You were in the building. I don't believe that, Michael. You do remember going in there. And you know you were in there. Did you shoot any of those girls? No, sir. Then tell us what happened. What do those people do to those girls? Do I live with this the rest of your life? No, I don't. Then get it out right now. They're you over. They're the ones that shot the girls. Do it. What did you see happen? At some point where he's handing his that revolver, what does he say to you? Either shoot him or you're next. That's what he said. Because I didn't want to do it. Right. Either shoot him or you're next. What, what do you remember doing then? I remember looking at this girl. I cry. I hear Robert saying, do it, do it. I hear the gun go off. I only pulled the trigger once. I turn around. Here's your stupid gun. What happened next, Mike? That brought back some memories, didn't it? I remember looking at the gun. You ever seen that gun before? I'm not positive. Does that look like the gun you've seen before? It looks like the gun I've seen before, but I'm not positive. Is that the gun you shot somebody with, Mike? I don't. Is that the gun you walked up behind somebody with and shot in the head? Is that the one? Talk to me, Mike. Yes, sir. You did that, didn't you? Yes, sir. We've been stopping some more doors, haven't we, Mike? Not really. You sure? Yes, sir. And now I'm going to play you the interrogation tape of one Robert Springsteen. Yeah. 
Thank you guys again so much for tuning in to another episode of Who Killed. I'll be back again next week with another episode. Don't forget to check out my other show, My Passion Case, with a lot of the names and podcast hosts you are very familiar with. So check it out wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks a lot and have a great week. And again, be safe. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us.